Welcome to Candela. I'm Christopher Hooten. On today's show, my co-host Alan Scheller and I chat with Vincent Peters, a German-born analog portrait photographer who regularly shoots covers for Vogue, GQ and other magazines. Often shooting in black and white and always with a very cinematic style, actors who have sat for Vincent include Emma Watson, Scarlett Johansson, Christian Bale, Charlize Theron, John Hamm, Amelia Clark, and Michael Fassbender. We hope you enjoy the episode, and be sure to reach out to us on Instagram, where we're at Candela Podcast. That's at C-A-N-D-E-L-A Podcast. Enjoy. So yeah, I was thinking about your work, and one need only look down your Instagram feed to see the kind of people you're you're shooting. You're shooting A-listers at the, at the highest levels, literally anyone you could think of with a, an Academy Award, really. It seems you've put the lens in front of at some point. Um, my job used to be, I was often uh, doing a lot of interviews with, with the big names, and uh, I was thinking ahead of this how people were often a little bit funny about interviews because I guess they don't know how they're going to come out, how they're going to come off. It's not always necessarily a win being uh, if you're being interviewed, especially if you're an actor. But I guess when you're photographing them right, generally people are pretty keen because people people like getting their photograph taken. Yeah, I, I think it goes to a deeper level that um, there is a confrontation with the alignment of what do we think about ourselves and and how we look at ourselves in the photographs. And I think there's different levels of authority. I think we all have a vision of ourselves. But when we're confronted with a photograph, it might not align at all with our own mirror views of what we think we look like and how we like to present ourselves. And I think, you know, kind of in that space in between of that you may that you may not be for other people what you are for yourself. If this is the space where you earn a living or more or less define your whole identity, it becomes a very different level. So I think everybody, um, I think everybody who's getting photographed for professional reasons is very well aware of that. And it's also, uh, you know, they're very fearful of the power of photography because on one side they're using it, but they're incredibly dependent on it. So I think, you know, what, what you can say just of, of what you just said in the question, all these people are Oscar winners and, and, you know, more or less, let's say they're outranking any of us in attention, in fame, probably in money, mm. you know, and in attention for just what they achieved for their life. But at the same time, you need to remember that it makes them the most vulnerable about potentially depending on that and losing it. So the more they've been given, the more they're afraid to lose it, you know, for the same reason. And, and I think with, within that little gap, you know, that, that extended vulnerability, because, um, they're so much more needy that this thing really works, you know, uh, you also have to be very sensitive with that. So I, I've never met somebody who is, genuinely really confident and doesn't care about the results in that sense because he's used to it. Now, they may be able to, you know, let's say there is a natural posing level of because they have a routine of presenting themselves in the camera. But it's just that. It's just a routine. In that sense, the fear is still there. So that's something that you have to manage quite a lot on on location when you're shooting. Or is that something that that you just try and play down and and make as little of it as you can. Well, I think there's also a gradual development because the interesting thing is that, you know, again, going back to your question, the more these people have been photographed and the more they've been confronted with the publication of it, the more fearful they're becoming. Mm. So you mm. see with the, the more, the more paparazzis there are around, the more media there's around. And, and as you have today where everybody is a paparazzi with this mobile phone, the confrontation with their own image becomes more and more a need to be controlled from these people. So when you look at, for example, pictures from maybe the 60s or the 50s, where, you know, glamour photography was either completely controlled in a studio, or it was kind of like very loose reportage. You have pictures from Steve McQueen or from, from, you know, Clint Eastwood, where, you know, they're just hanging out on set and they look a bit silly. And they're often the references for today. 
But that occasion of like generally just having a guy snapping some shots, it would be very hard to do. Today, you would have to stage it. You have to say, okay, I want to do a shot with Clint Eastwood on a small bicycle. And then the publicist had to okay it. And then they're going to have to like it, you know. Yeah. But that spontaneity would not be there anymore. You know, mm. no, no journalist like Leibovitz was following the Stones back in the day, you know, or Dennis Stock was just following James Dean around and just snapping things away. I don't think that complicity still exists between the photographer because the, the result becomes too much career defining and too fearful. You know? Yeah. To, to that end, like um, in terms of the sign off process, uh, are you able to say this is the shot? Or, or does it have to go through, you know, people's team and they're like, oh, actually, no, we prefer this one. And are they very kind of controlling often about which shots get used and how they're edited and et cetera? It depends on the celebrity, you know. Mm. But I mean, I always work for a client and I think that client is more in touch with them than I am. So, for example, I shoot a cover for a magazine like maybe whatever, Vogue, GQ, Bazaar. And it runs through them and they obviously are in touch with the publicists. And then through that, obviously, the shot that ever has to be agreed on. Sometimes, you know, with some people, I'm in touch with them myself or I'm myself in touch with the publicist because they like the work. But, yeah, definitely there has to be an agreement and they all have a version or a vision of who they want to be. And you might do a nice shot, but it may not cater to the image they like to project. You know, so you can take a very sexy picture, beautiful shot of some girl, but she says, yeah, but I don't want to be that sexy girl. I want to mm. be the serious kind of more, you know, ambassador of, of, of certain issues. And she's like, you can never publish that. Well, with another girl, it would be the other way around. Yeah. You know? yeah. Um, question I wanted to ask you was about, um, obviously, there are no general rules with these kinds of things. But do you find that you kind of wait to take the right shot or do you take a lot of shots on a, on a shoot? Because I, I can imagine it would be very annoying for someone to be photographed like twelve hundred times in ten minutes. Well, I don't shoot. Di I don't shoot digital. You know, I shoot analog. So already, I only have ten frames in one there film. That slows me down a lot. And then I do middle format. So I'm not very fast. Mm. You know, a lot of times there's also a bit of a break in between these people are not used to anymore and they think something is wrong you know they're changing it but you know i'm doing the focus i'm looking for the composition but i'm shooting very slow i do maybe a picture every 20 30 seconds which is fairly yeah. slow considering digital photographers you just hammer a lot of shots out and then able to get a lot more in between which, which i but for me it yeah yeah sorry i was just gonna say that your work looks uh considered and and it, it certainly looks like you're like there, there's one shot of uh scarlett johansson in in a mirror and having mm. tried a few shots like that myself it is it's harder than it looks to get it perfect that shot was actually um I, she was sitting on the bed yeah and i went behind her and told her to pick up the mirror and i did two frames of that shot. And I felt it was kind of tacky and, and, and a little obvious. Mm. And I didn't like it when I shot it. And I told her, okay, whatever, forget about it. But mm. I literally just have two frames of that shot. But that day when I shot Scarlett, she was already pregnant. And I think it was not supposed to be, it was a little bit of an awkward situation because it was a shoot for sexiest woman alive. Mm. At the same time, I think she didn't feel very good because she was already in the first stages of more serious pregnancy. Mm. And her husband was on board. So I think the mood of the magazine, what they wanted, I had a similar problem once with uh, Gwyneth Paltrow. Sometimes the mood of the, of the, let's say, the sitter is not necessarily the one the magazine wants to project. You know, it, it, honestly, it happened quite frequently. I had a, a you know, I, I, I shoot a lot with Monica Bellucci and I shot her for GQ and, and uh, the magazine was like, get her naked. And I was like, dude, and she was like, I had two kids. I'm a mom. I'm not going to go naked. I mean, that's over, you know. And they were quite upset, but I'm like, look, guys, you know, I mean, it's true. Like people move on from a certain level mm. sometimes. Anyway, going back to that shot from Scarlett, um, I was, the whole shoot was difficult because I think she was, she, you know, they're very careful when they go for the sexiest woman alive thing that it's not cheap or that it doesn't roll into uh, um, something you know, like borderline, a little bad taste. Mm. And like I said, since her boyfriend was there, you know, everything was had to be kind of discussed. But I, I love that shot so much because I think if you look at it on a very difficult day, she really looks at me, you know, the way she, it's not the shot, it's not the mirror. I think because of also the outer focus around and it was so improvised, 
But there's a way where she really looks at me in that moment. And I felt that was the moment where um, I had that shot that I wanted. It was the most personal picture of the day. Everything mm -hmm. else was maybe more posed, more generic, you know. But again, that shot uh, you talked about, it was it was a complete accident, you know. And I think you need to, as a photographer, um, you need to let that breathe. You need to engage yourself into that accident, you know. And, and do you find that the pictures that you connect with the most are usually the ones that the client are happy with? Or do you, uh, do you convince them which ones you think should be put forward? Or do they just pick out of the contact sheet? No, I don't give them the contact sheet. <laughs> Wise. <laughs> <laughs> No, I mean, it's, it could be a battle. I'm never really, if, if I have a cover shoot, I'm very rarely happy with the cover. It's true. I mean, look, I think there's two kinds of, of photographers, maybe not just photographers, let's say, um, creatives in general. They are the people that have the capacity to give not the client, but let's say a, a larger audience exactly what they want and what they need. That is the happy end. That is the Steven Spielberg movie that's entertaining. We know how it ends. We sit on the sofa. We want to go to sleep and it's going to be a good night. You mm -hmm. know, they have that talent and they're living that world. Maybe in photography would be like Mario Testino, you know, and, and they, they're giving you what you need and it's expected, but it's also evident. And then there's other photographers. I think they have the talent that they give you something that is rather, responding to something unexpected it you know corresponds with curiosity and they're they're always a smaller group and they're always kind of like a little bit more of the underdog side but they give you something in a way that you expected it but it's it's very different probably it's a darker side or a more sentimental side that's how i feel know? about uh, terry o'neill's work yeah i think terry o'neill is definitely more quirky like his pictures of David Bowie, uh, a lot of people photograph David Bowie, but his ones always stand out to me as being really interesting. Well, I think Terry O'Neill, again, also was capable. That's what I said before. He was able to work on a time where the situation was not as rigid as it is today. There was more improvisation. Yeah. You know, and I think that really, there was, it was more playful. It was more, they were, they left more up to chance. And I think you would not, with obviously David being alive or whoever you're going to shoot today, it would have been like, okay, you got two hours in a studio in New York and there's no before and after. And there's no like snappity shots, 35 mil around. And those are the good shots of, of, of Terry, I think. Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah, I totally agree. Yeah, I guess it just, it just kind of occurred to me that thinking about like what, what works for the client and what works for the photographer, it must be particularly tricky with, with a cover shoot because, you know, to a, to a few so to photography fans like us, we would have one certain choice. But for a publisher, they're thinking we want the picture that's the most recognizably Brad Pitt because people are going to see this on a crowded shelf and we want them to see that's the star so it's particularly stuck those two things but I guess like you were saying with the with the Monica Bellucci thing I guess it's more fun for a photographer right to try and bring out something different so if they say I am seen this way but I want to be seen more this way that's more of an interesting dynamic than you than being like it's the sexy girl let's shoot her in a sexy way you know so I guess that's mm. Um, well, the pro I don't think you can really win for the cover because the discussion is never with the client. It's the client is generally underestimating his audience. He says, oh, this is what they want, unfortunately. And he yeah. always says, oh, yeah, you're right. That would be every time I'm with the creative director on a cover, he says, oh, that would be a great cover. But we would never be able to print that. <laughs> And you're like, why not? You know, it's kind of like, oh, well, this is black and white. People don't like, you know, it's just all not true. Yeah. I mean, I think they have these kind of like rigid statistics of how to frequently underestimate their 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 consumers. And, and um, it kind of like narrows them down. But it's really like in the end, they, they're deciding rather uh, through fear than, than to a, a genuine voice. 100%. You know, of, or or their, their own taste. I'm so glad you said that. You yeah. know, and then they say, oh, I totally agree with you. You know, like, you're right. This is a great cover. You know, if you look at the cover for my latest book, uh, the picture from Emma Watson with the white paint over her mm. face, you know. It's a great shot. Not just that. The magazine didn't want me to do that picture. They literally <laughs> tried to stop the shoot when I did it. And it was only because Emma said, no, I, I think it's a nice idea. I want to do it. And then when I when I proposed it for the cover of the book, because it was really supposed to be a small book on the side because of the, the, the show at Photographiska, the editor was like, why would you put this picture with the white stuff on her face? I mean, you know, who's going to like that? You know, I mean, you really have to, 
you know, it's like, it's not selling. It's not selling. I mean, it's like, dude, that, that, that book was like best sold book in like five categories. Like, you know, they, it, you have to really prove them wrong, but often you don't get the opportunity to do it. No, you know? well done for pushing that one through. <laughs> yeah, it's so funny you said that. Me and Alan, literally two episodes ago, were talking exactly about that, how people really underestimate people's ability to take on new new ideas and just really kind of dumb them down in a way it doesn't make any sense like that yeah. that photograph of, of emma watson with the white face is fantastic and i'm sure online it performs really well and you can you can see that people like it yep people just have mm. this reactionary stance of like no that's not a cover image well it also it, it really sold the book yeah you know, but i already tried to put this on the cover of my first book and it was refused and i didn't have the same position with the editor back then so i just let it slide i like the picture from Sakala too but yeah it's it's but then again it's it's not all ego you're you know sometimes you know also as a photographer sometimes you're also wrong and you i'm, I'm happy to take good advice you know mm. it's not like that you know i think i always yeah. know better you know when i started doing my first proper exhibitions uh, like solo shows i i was uh, curated and I found it quite a jarring process of having someone else all of a sudden come in and tell you which pictures should be in the show and which one should be cut from the show. And I was like, but that's my, you know, and this, this lady who curated me, she, uh, she definitely knew what she was doing because it sold well <laughs> uh, over the series. And I was yeah. like, and I mean, like, I think you always hope and you, you, you hope that the other people know better than you. I think if they genuinely give you their best shot, I would think it's fine. But if they just, like you say, if they're just underestimating a crowd for a potential commercial win, yeah. then it's disappointing, you know, because you said, yes, if you really think this is the better picture and you, you, you cultivate a person, no problem. I'm ready to be guided, you know, like look right now when I've done the, the selection from Photographiska over there in Sweden. They were quite straight what they wanted and they wanted a lot of men in the show and I was not sure about it. But I was like, look, guys, you guys running, you know, a huge photography museum stuff is working out. Yeah, let's go for it. Okay, I trust you. Yeah, you know? yeah it's, it's the kind of surrendering that part of the process because there are some people who have spent their whole mm. lives just doing that part of the process. Yeah. And yeah, it took. Yeah. it was nice to be reminded of that and just to let go of stuff a little bit. Because I, th I think photographers are kind of, you know, we're so controlling of... Uh, of so many things because it's kind of a very personal and one man or woman show kind of thing. And then at some point you have yeah. to, but it also limits us, you know, I mean, you have to have a conversation with the audience. It's a, it's a very complex process to communicate with someone, you know, and as a photographer, often we shoot our ideas with ego and we presenting something, but you know, there's, there's not necessarily resonance. And I don't really think it's a good way to communicate because in the end, we kind of insecure. We're not sure if it's a really great picture, but we're walking in and a photograph as an essential part, it's an opinion. You know, if I walk into a conversation with you or with anyone and I make it this opinion and I said, this is what I think of this subject, this person, this landscape, this world. And I present it with these kind of like self-confidence of like, of rigidness. I don't have a conversation with the people looking at it. There's nothing that's swinging back and forth, you know, and I think the only way for an audience, they might be overwhelmed. They might think it's great technically, but they don't really connect with it. The picture, it, somehow the picture is loud, but then it goes quiet. It's just a bang. And they, it, most of the time, they may be impressed with the subject because it's a celebrity. They may be impressed with the technical side. But if you want to communicate with people, you need to involve them into the picture. And that's the really difficult part of an artistic process. You need to have something in your shot that is unavailable for you and for the other person that is not there, that is that also has an open outcome, like a conversation. You're going into a conversation. If you already know what you want to say to the other person or the other person already has his opinion. Now you're both kind of like saying, oh, I think about this and you think about that. You know, maybe interesting. But if you don't take anything on, if you talk to people and if you speak with them and you said, what was the, the things that really, that, that really mean something to you? It was, it's always the things that people say, Oh, I remember this really changed me or I, I wasn't the same afterwards. It's still with me. I was not the same person. It's something that, um, 
that they're connecting with in a long-term sense. That photograph always stayed with me. That movie changed my life. After that music still, you know what I mean? So I think you need to be careful that the, 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 the photograph, as you don't make it a, a, a strong statement out of insecurities, but you're excluding the people they're supposed to look at it. And then it's meaningless. Mm. Because if you're just standing on Trafalgar Square with a megaphone and throwing out your opinion... What's the use of it? You know, people listen to you because you're entertaining, but they don't get and connect with you. Does it make sense? Mm. Yeah. And of course, different people will bring different their own life experience and their own opinions yeah. to, to a picture. It's, it's interesting yeah. that how people can, and, and same with films as well, of course, and, and most art. Yeah. And you will never tell them what they're supposed to feel. It was not, it's not yeah. what you're going to feel. It's not what you motivated to take the shot. When I, when you talk about, you know, the picture, whatever, one of mine or one of yours, what you can do is you can, you can suggest something to people. And again, the more open the suggestion, the more they might take it on and they might connect with something in them. So I think what a good photograph can do or a good art piece in general, it's kind of a bridge that you're guiding that person to a certain feeling they would not have without you. But that feeling they have is going to be his. Mm. He, you connect him with something within himself. You're not walking in and saying, oh, look at this. I want you to feel great. Or, then it's pornography. Then it's easy. You know, then you just shoot a naked woman and the guy get excited, you know, mm. but that's not communication. You mm. know, the more, the more you leave it, the more communication is unavailable and unfinished. The more intense it's going to like, you, you have the capacity to take it with you. you yeah. Know? That's kind of why I, I really hate captions and titles generally on pieces of work because it's like you're just stripping away a layer of ambiguity that was quite nice a hundred percent and I, I guess um you must find as well as I do in filmmaking that it's about leaving room for spontaneity because if you've got you know especially on a film set where the camera movements have been decided the set design's done the costume design is done everything is so mm. so much sort of architecture and has gone into it you need to find space to play within that and I guess you know you do quite a lot of high concept shoots and I guess you want to make sure that within this idea of the with the costume and the mood and everything you've still got space for those weird like you said with Scully Hansen how that shot came about kind of on the fly to, to mm. make sure that those moments still are able to arise yeah and I think it's true I think look I personally um I, I read an interesting interview with Sean Penn and he said um he said don't make up my dreams for me you know don't give me your dreams I want my own just give me ideas for my own dreams, but don't make up dreams for myself. And don't impress me with, with your pyrotechnics or your, you know, like photographers when they always want to have like some technically perfect shot and they talk about technique or, you know, maybe even in the movies, you have some incredible scene. But he says that's just with, within limits, it's cowardless because you don't have the courage that you you just showing something of yourself that what makes it interesting show me something in a photograph that is uniquely yourself and you got to have the the level of embarrassment that it's so personal that you're giving people something and you expose yourself so personal that it's really there is a sense of uh, uh, um, nudity almost to it for yourself but if you if you cover that up and if you just try to impress people you know, you giving, you taking exactly that level of vulnerability away from them that would probably resonate with them. The honesty of it that you said, this is something that I, these are my unique emotions or thoughts or feelings about a person, a mood, a subject, a day, you know. But if you just try to plaster it down with uh, pyrotechnics or filters or sharpness, yeah, it's it's interesting for a moment, but these pictures don't last. I'm, mm -hmm. I'm, you know, I'm very sure about that. You know, if you look at the 100, 200 best photog photographs ever taken, most of them are in bad lighting and out of focus, you know. Yeah. I just went, I was just in New York like uh, 10 days ago and there's an uh, exhibition of Dorothea Lange at the Modern Art. Mm. That picture, you know, with her and the children, the the the, the migrant mother, yeah. it's pretty out of focus, you know, yeah. the eyes are soft and, you know, who fucking cares? There's no yeah, lighting, it's the, you know. It's the moment, yeah, is the, is this king. You know, well, I always say to people, I, I do quite a lot of workshops, and when I, I'm teaching people, I say, you know, how many times have you seen a shitty, very sharp picture? 
Yeah, or how many times, you know, it's like you say something, it's like you say something to somebody and it's really honest and he's correct, he's correcting your spelling, you know? <laughs> yeah. And you're like, that's not the point, brother, you know? <laughs> yeah, so sometimes everything aligns and it's all perfect, but um, I, I imagine, yeah, when you're when you're doing your portraits, that there must be, you know, a kind of in between moments, maybe where they're fixing their hair or when they're, you know, like not mm. not strictly posing, or that you must grab a shot instinctively. It's always what it's all about. It's the in between shot where it's kind of in the light, it's kind of there. But it remains also that person, because as we said in the beginning, all these people are fairly good in pretending that they're somebody else. Yeah. You know, they're pretending yeah. they're this self-confident media person. And, you know, without naming names, but, you know, like even me, there's all these actresses coming on set and you're making references to some Victoria's Secret girls. And they're like, oh, my God, yeah, make me look like her. And I'm like, <laughs> you're serious, you know? It's, it's just some skinny chicken lingerie, but you know, they're also impressed by some like media attention to something, you know, but then again, I was thinking, you know, none of them has the personality you have, you know, but aesthetically, we have such rigid benchmarks mm. today where these people want to uh, um, apply to. And I think that's also, unfortunately, that those aesthetic benchmarks today, they're technical. You know, if you look at Instagram photography today, you know, it's just cosmetics. You know, those girls just want to look 10 years younger and have good skin and big lips and some fucking, you know, $5 app can do it. They don't need a photographer anymore. <laughs> yeah, you know? just need their, so, their phone and, and that's it. Yeah, maybe 10 years ago you needed some retouching or some photography or somebody who kind of like... But today, honestly, you know, like you can download an app and that doubles your lip size, you know. And Who knows? Maybe in, in another 10 years, I could even look like that with these apps. <laughs> Dude, 10 years, 10 weeks, yeah. 10 weeks. It is, it is a shame there's that technical that barrier now that, um, you know, there are a lot of interesting photographs that would just never even kind of really surface amongst all the noise because they don't hit the, hit the parameters of being, you know, super sharp and <laughs> and having a ton of color work done to them it's, it's interesting yeah but i th i mean i hope that there's going to be a fatigue to yeah these, i hope so too like like pushed aesthetic level but i think the reason is that we you know we always there's this obligation to record like this like identity of your life because i think you know the more we're traveling the more this is a society that really just also works through a dynamic of movement and I think the more you know, people don't take pictures when they stay at home very little or something is moving at home that maybe the kids or the dog, you know. But I mean, the, I think since tourism or the idea of tourism becomes like the essential idea of how we're going to live our lives, you know, we like, but we also lose the identity of where we come from. So I think we feel that through photographs, we constantly have to kind of like reconfirm our experiences or become somebody, you know, because we like if you have your home and your house and, and then you know where you belong. But today we're constantly traveling and going somewhere and we constantly want to be like, I've been here, I've been there. We don't really take pictures of things. We take pictures of pictures. We go to the Eiffel Tower, we take the picture that's been taken a thousand times and we want it to look like the other pictures. We don't want it to look like new original, you know. So I think, you know, it's also because it's always these definition of identity becomes really important through photography you know like it's 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 it, it, it you would be if you go to rome and you don't take any pictures people think you're kind of like indifferent to life or to yourself <laughs> and, you know like it's kind of like the guy you know there's these you know everybody I mean, you you heard it's like these guys like i saw these guys sitting at starbucks just having a coffee you know he didn't and he was just sitting there for half an hour i'm sure he's a freak yeah yeah <laughs> he was not on his phone you know yeah. and you're like uh, you know, if somebody who's not picking up a phone or a computer for more than half an hour is definitely a serial killer these days, you know. No, definitely. Yeah, I always find it on the London Underground. There's like the one person sitting there not listening to music or reading yeah. a book or on their phone or, right? or, or anything. And they're just sitting there and it's like... And you're thinking it's the Joker, you know, it's like pulling up some masks. Yeah, it's like, where's, where's the gun? Yeah. I do try and like ca catch myself sometimes. I'll be in, in a beautiful place or having just a really nice experience and go to reach for my phone or reach for my camera and just be like, you know, you know no, I'm just going to let myself have this one. I'm just going to actually appreciate yeah. it. <laughs> but you see how difficult it is, how it we is. have to be yeah. reminded yeah. of ourselves. Because I really think if you look at it historically, we used to take pictures of events. Now the picture becomes the event, you know? 
And then it's been shared and, 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 and filtered. And, you know, because also we're in such a competitive society that it's always about more, more pictures, better colors, you know, but it's just not there. You know, we have to pump it into it. You know, the smiles on our pictures are not real. And I think it's, it, it's, it's rather a certain sadness than it doesn't serve the purpose anymore because we knew it wasn't that great when we were, it was, it was a bit of a gray day when we've been in Venice. But with all these filters, suddenly it looks like it's been really great lighting. You know, mm. we kind of like faking our own identity. You know, it's like it's like a, a, a an older woman retouching herself, but at the same time, she is. Um, you know, there is a certain demeaning, you know, a, a, a self destructive process because she she declares herself as not being good enough for what she is. You know? And that will only get worse over time. It's a losing battle. Yeah, but that's what we do with our own life. We said, my life is not that interesting, so I need some filters on it, which is a very self-destructing process. Mm. You know, it's self-inflicted pain if you think your vacation wasn't that great because the pictures are not good enough. You know? Yeah. It reminds me, a, a female friend of mine uh, posted a story the other day. It was a, a picture of herself and she uh, she put, I was going to airbrush out the crow's feet, but I don't hate myself enough today. And I thought that was a really, <laughs> very like, wonderfully honest thing to say. I quite appreciated that. Yeah. <laughs> so if it, I've got one, one question about um, the black and white medium that you work in. Mm. So obviously black and white isn't uh, the kind of, I'm guessing a lot of magazines would would tend to go for color more, mm. or 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 do they ever ask you to have the option of color all the time? I, I get this as well. No, I mean I do. I I I I made a rough decision, but it's like I said, it's a little bit what I said earlier that I do have that. I'm rather the photographer that wants to raise curiosity than the one that wants to confirm the obvious. Mm. And obviously, the photographer who confirms the obvious that makes rich people look rich and happy and, and beautiful is always more successful, you know, because I think it's, it's, it's food for the masses. And, and it's true. What, what brought me into photography, it's, it's storytelling and the ideas of working with lighting. But there was also a time when I didn't really know where to go. And this whole Instagram came up. And at the same time, I had offers for galleries and, and I wanted to, I, I, you know, and, and people asked me to do books and I, I needed to find also a voice where I say, this is something that really has, that it's, it, that I feel it's good enough to put on the walls. Because I didn't want it to do a book that is just a random selection of commercial work that I've done. I've seen this with some photographers and I'm thinking, what a waste of time, you know. Mm. So I, I think you need to have something to say. And I think when you're a little lost where to go, um, I think the best way to do it, it's like, you know, it's like in a relationship, you know. Um, let's say you're 20 years of marriage and, and in the end, what keeps you together with your wife is a little bit the everyday, but at the same time, it's also the everyday that pulled you apart because you do this job, she does that job in between. Sometimes you see the kids, but there was something there that made you go there. There was something there that made you really want to be with this person. And there was something there that really wanted, wanted to make me be a photographer when I was, when I was like, you know, 18 years old and it was lighting. Yeah. You know, and, and I, I kind of like thought rather than copying other people and going through this identity crisis, I think at that moment, take your wife back to Venice where you met her and try to find out what happened when you see her the first time. There was something there that was really good. There was a very sentimental moment that you said, this is the one. And it's the same thing with me in photography. I went back to that time where I said, I want to spend my life with this job, you know, and, and it was, it was old black and white pictures from Time Life magazine. And, and, and then because I got like more and more, you know, then I, I did want it to kind of like do a firewall against the commercial triviality of Instagram. And I kind of stayed with it. You know, I, I, I do like photography as something more serious, you know? Yeah. Mm. But I don't. I don't say it's better. It just works for me, you know. Yeah, same. I I work exclusively in black and white as well, and mm. uh, it just it's just the medium I I that got me into photography. So it made sense for me just to keep going with it. Like, well, yeah, similar to what you said. It's what it's what started it. And I think you can compare it. You can compare uh, visuals always a lot to music, you know. And I think if you shoot color. Um, you have a bigger orchestra, you have more instruments, you know, which is interesting. It's impressive and I like it. But if you do black and white, you reduce it to a very simple melody. It's very essential, you know, 
And if you get that right, that melody really stays in your head. So I think you just read, like, you know, you, there, there's a very good line from, from Ernest Hemingway. He said in uh, a Paris, a movable feast. And he said, write the truest sentence, you know, where there's nothing to add and nothing to be taken away, you know? And I think that's really what good photography is. It's right on that spot that you look at the picture and you said anything on top is not necessary, but anything taken away, something would have been missing. Mm. You know? mm. Yeah. Yeah. There's another Hemingway thing that I hold to heart, his iceberg theory that, uh, you should be able to see the tip of the iceberg above the water, but then know that there's a lot going on underneath it. And that's always a nice way to approach it. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And that's very important in photography, I think. You yeah. know? Mm. I'd love to hear a bit about, because um, obviously, yeah, you, you guys both shoot in black and white, but you do play with kind of brown tones, don't you, Vincent? I don't mind color photography. I just It just happened because I was really focusing on the gallery and the book work for a while. And at the same time, the, the you know, I think I was a little bit uh, um, surprised how quickly Instagram changed the market, you know? Mm. So suddenly I was, I was too much on that. I wanted to have something that I guess you call a unique selling point. I really wanted to be like, what's a Vincent Peters photograph yeah. and is it any good? You know, because I was just shooting again, like, you know, to go back to my example with marriage, I was just shooting what I got paid for and what I was asked to do. And I was trying to get the best job in the moment. But there was, I don't felt, I don't know if there was a con consistent vision below that. And personally, I was always very impressed by photographers. You know, I mean, take Helmut Newton for a lack of a better example. But I mean, he can shoot a fingernail or a flower pot and it has that slightly grotesque force. And it doesn't matter what he shoots. You know, this is, this is a Newton. You will see it. Yeah. And aesthetically on a very different scale, Sarah Moon has it. You know, Sarah Moon can shoot a table in a garden. Mm. There's always a message of longing and loneliness in Sarah's pictures, I think, you know, and sometimes she, she can shoot an animal in a, um, in a circus and it would be, it would be a lonely animal. It would be caged in. It would have it was have dreams to escape mm. or she should, I mean, I just shoot a, saw her shooting a, a, a tree in the winter, but it has that mood. She's really able to express her vision through all these different things that she's doing. And, and, and I wanted to know if I can do that, if I could really clarify for myself, very introspective to say, what is, what am I good at? You know, or am I any good at this or am I just lucky and getting paid for it sometimes? Yeah. But the more I did this, the less I got paid for like, you know, doing certain like, you know, and then the market and suddenly there's no more budgets and the editorial market suddenly disappeared. And then I was suddenly the black and white photographer and I do like it, you know, but well, yeah. it, it was a little bit of a, you know, what I was, was what I was referring to in my, in my questions specifically was when you play around with um, the you know prints where you kind of get some sepia brown tones mm. in and when and mm. how you decide when you're going to play with that as opposed to being it being kind of strictly black and shades of gray. Yeah, I don't want my I I don't want to use obvious um, technical uh, uh, um, ideas of making it uh, sentimentally retro. Yeah, you know, and I I, I tend to. Had, want to keep something timeless in my pictures. But uh, for example, you know, when I, when I used to print and did my prints myself, we had this bleaching process. I don't know if you remember that from printing, you know? So there was a two-step toner. And if you just put the first step in, it, 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 you know, there was a guy back in the day called Philip Dixon who did it a lot. It, it kind of like eats away the print, you know? Mm. Depends how long you leave it inside. And it has a beautiful effect. It looks a bit like a, a bleach Polaroid you know, mm. or Sarah Moon herself for a better way, who shoot a lot of Polaroid. But I always felt you are, you're feeding off a certain emotion that is not your own, you know, trying to make it look like somebody's shot. Um, like it, it would be, it, the, the quality would only be like, how much can you kind of like, you know, cater to his vision? Mm. You know, it would be like painting like somebody else. And maybe you're really good at it. Maybe you, you could paint like that. It almost looks like a Van Gogh but you're not him, you know, it wouldn't help you to develop your own vision, you know? So I think it, it's, it's a tricky thing to be too nostalgic in photography. I think, you know, yeah. even though I think it's visually very effective and very pleasing. Well, it's a good way to learn, but it's a bad way to continue. Uh, there has to be a point where you stop and exactly. say, okay, 
I've picked up techniques. And I have that nostalgia in me. I have to really fight myself that I don't go there too much, yeah. you know, because it's true. I like something sentimental in my photograph, you know, and I, if I have the choice between whatever, an old movie and a new movie, I watch the old movie. You know? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. When- yeah, one thing, uh, Vincent, I'd be interested to get your take on. It's not even really about photography, although maybe it is in a way. Is um, obviously this new era we're in with celebrities on social media. So you know, for years and years, for decades and decades, movie stars, particularly with with these unknowable people, you saw them in movies. Maybe you saw a paparazzi photo here or there, but you knew nothing about their lives. And now you see them eating their breakfast. You see, you know, you see parts of their day ten times a day. I'm wondering what you you make of that, and how I guess because it sort of it does tie in in a way to what you were talking about photography and how people present themselves. Do you think we've lost something? Yeah, I think we're losing. We're losing the mystery. I think the more concrete and real something becomes, and I think we're living in kind of, I mean, I don't want to go too far with this, but we're living in a social matter where we become, everything needs to be clarified and rationalized and materialized. We need to understand everything. We need to make everything available. This culture is about making life and world available with frames of photographs, with with science going deep into the matter. Technically, we want to fly everywhere. But the more places we've seen, the more, the more things we understand. Again, we don't, we don't, there's, what makes us correspond with things is the unavailable, is the, is the imagination. Also with celebrity, if you know so much about them, in a way, you take something away, they're losing the magic. You just consume them for entertainment purposes. Mm. But I think what you, what, what is, there's something missing, you know, there's a, a, a there's an interesting sociologist, Max Weber called it, talks a disenchantment. Uh, Walter Benjamin calls it the loss of the aura, you know, there's something to, to things that they, they're gaming a certain mystery. The things we really engage with when life is also, it's the other person because other people for us are always remain a mystery. If we meet them, the more we know somebody, the, the less we understand them in a way. That's why couples break up, you know, or if they know each other too well, they get bored. But I think it, it, the same thing with celebrity or with photography. Photography has an interesting effect because it can really confirm the identity of something, just like the identity of a person. You can exactly get what you think you get, or you can get something very different and it completely uh, exchanges the identity of the thing. And photography always goes more or less both ways. So you can, you know, like when you shoot a celebrity and you know this is the publicist, they might tell you, oh, we want exactly that picture because she's like this. She has, she has that dress on, she has this haircut. Hair and makeup has always been decided by the talent, you know. But, you know, you, you lose... You lose that way of getting to the process of getting to know something. Mm. That is so exciting for us. Why do we watch football games? Because we don't know the results. You know, why is love so fascinating for us? Because we cannot make it truly available. So I think if it's a person, if it's something, if the more available, the more we rationalize things. And that's the danger. That's always what I said in the beginning. The more clear cut, filtered, sharp something is the less it speaks to us. And then it, the world goes quiet on us and something disappears. And then we try to regain that magic by doing yoga or buying vegetable at the markets or trying to travel to India or maybe even becoming vegan because we still want the outside world suddenly to affect us and to speak to us. But there's an interesting contradiction. And on one side, we try to make more life available. We try to rationalize, understand, consume everything. Everything needs to be bought. And when I buy it, I own it, I have it, I use it. But at the same time, it loses that, that, that those moments we had that we cherish so much when we were children, when everything was a wonder, mm. when everything was new and amazing, even Christmas, you know. Those are the moments emotionally that carry us through life, but we try to destroy them and then we try to reconstruct them somewhere else, you know. But I think a big reason today for political problems, even for burnout to a certain point is 
because things don't speak to us anymore because they're all so clear. It's just what it is, you know? Oh, it's just another picture of Kirsten Stewart or you name it or, you know, like uh, Justin Bieber. And, and it, 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 this, this, you know, look at an old picture from, um, Marlene Dietrich, Marilyn Monroe, what a mystery person, mm. you know? So we need to, the, the interesting thing is that we're talking a lot about celebrity, but I think we need to be very clear that the fascination with celebrity is not that they are somebody else, that they're carrying a longing in ourselves, they're living as a part of ourselves. These people are what we want to be. They are not what they are. And we're projecting ourselves on them, our own desires, our needs, mm. our fears, our, you know, they are, they are fairy tales for us. And the more you rationalize them, that specific function that you think you know them, but these people are, are you know, a, a, a psychologically kind of, a, 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 how do you, what's the proper word for it, you know, but we, they're projections of our own needs and they living it out. And to a certain point, they know that, you know, because none of us knows them, but they have the, they, the more they can do it, the talent of a celebrity or an actor or even a musician is they be able to live a life that we would like to live and they can, they're taking that role and do it in a credible way that we believe them, that we get so close to them that we could imagine like we could be like James Bond. We're having all the women, but you already see the steps in between there's Sean Connery, then there is the movie, and then there is James Bond. And then we imagine ourselves as James Bond being played by Sean Connery. Then we think we can get the women in the cars and, and, and beat the bad guys. And, and there's something, you know, untouchable and, and cool and, 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 you know, grander to this life, you know. But I think when we, when we talk about these people, um, they don't really exist. You know, they just means to an end. And that end is our own longing of becoming bigger than our own lives, you know. And if you look at it in an historical context, there was a philosopher in the mid-19th century called Feuerbach, and he developed a theory about the Catholic saint that all these saints are just exactly like you, like we are, but they're a little bit better. They have that one goodness that we do not have. They just act less selfish and and in a situation where we may be hungry and we would just take the food or or we would be angry and they giving they they have a more moral sense of being a little bit better than us and you see with the same time of when the church loses its influence the 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 figure of celebrity becomes more and more important throughout the 20th century so they're replacing just like within the catholic church all these saints and saint, saint peter saint paul Suddenly we have Liz Taylor, you know, Grace Kelly, you know, maybe Rudolf Valentino. And then it moves into at some point, it's just Justin Bieber. But these people acting, they are like us, but they're a little better. And that little better is so defining that we could never be like them, you know. So there's really a historical long-term rather in, in, subconscious functions to these people. They, 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 um, that was a long answer, right? <laughs> yeah, no, but I mean, and the, the, the metaphor of sainthood is, is apt because, you know, this is why you see celebrities now often trying to be so kind of performatively honorable and, and virtuous. And I guess that <laughs> rises out of that yeah. wanting to give across this this facade of themselves as, as like the perfect human being, even though everyone's... Exactly. They have to be, they have to be in charity and George Clooney has to save the world. And, you know, but at the end, if you look at it, the parallel to Feuerbach's interpretation of the Catholic saint, you know, he, he obviously wrote way before there was any level of celebrity, you know, it's very, it's very fitting for even in ourself. I think if you look at it, the definition of what you are, and understanding that there is an ideal of yourself that you don't necessarily need to be, but you might carry in you, you know, is the sense of sanity you have. The more you always try to be, even in a photograph, the more you always try to be the best version of yourself, you will be, you will be, like, say, exhausted by never arriving and it will kill you, which in the end, it's been defined as a narcissistic process because you said, no, you don't need to be the best of yourself, you know. It's okay. Your picture is good enough. And I think most of our photographers are also driven by this narcissistic fear of thinking, oh, we need to put some more contrast in. It's not good enough. You know, or we need to retouch this or, you know, 
But other people, again, this is not what, like, like, like what you said before, it's not the sharpness in the picture that's going to make it a better photograph. You know? No. Mm. It's a very interesting uh, look at, at uh, celebrity and, and why you do what you do. Yeah. Well, you know, yeah, because I think for me, I'm just letting them act. It's like a child. I mean, if you look at it, an actor is a very childish thing. He's, mm. he's walking around and pretends that some guy's going to, like, make the world disappear and he has to save, you know, and these are grown men, you know. And I, there's an interesting interview with um, with Michael Douglas. He thinks you have to be a total kid to be a celebrity because you, you're playing cops and robbers. You're walking around and there's, like, a bad guy. You have to beat him up and then he's you're going to save the world. I mean, it's a very childish game to be an actor. The ideals are very childish. And as a, as a photographer, look at Steven Spielberg, I think even. They're very childish people in a way. But that, that level of childish imagination, even for me, I just invent all these movies in my head, mm. you know. And there's probably references to my dad or to older things I've done in my childhood. when I think, oh, I want this guy to be like this and this guy does that. And, and nobody can, I can't, I can't even follow this process myself. But somehow this is where it comes from, you know. But I think, you know, David Lynch, Steven Spielberg, I think these are these are people they were able to cultivate and to translate maybe even, a, you know, a very childish self that's mm. been preserved and that is still connecting with other people, which is the wonder. What really makes us connect with each other is the idea of wonder, you know. And a celebrity is just defining wonder personalizing it yeah you know he's personal he's giving it a face you know that we like to be impressed and we hope there's more than this you know with our life with uh, right now look right now we're living in our fucking apartments we can hardly get out you know mm. but it's a good metaphor for a lot of times how we've been locked into our own life you know yeah it's true about the childhood thing i mean i, I think i was thinking of tarantino he's such a childlike character he's so full he's, of yeah, exactly. wonder and awe for cinema yeah, yeah. But he's able to translate that yeah, in such a mastery, capacity yeah. into other people. That is the thing. Now, look, Picasso, you know, for the, the worst example ever, draws like a child, you know. But he's capable of doing that on the level hmm. that is really opening up, you know. And a child who's just drawing like a child is just, you know, it's, 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 it's nowhere near to, to, to the same capacity of communication, you know? The thing that, the, that like Tarantino or Picasso are uh, so great at is, uh, is making something relatable to people and making them yeah. feel like, you know, obviously it's yeah. a very uh, accomplished piece of work, but it's also accessible to someone who doesn't know how to paint or how to shoot a film. And yeah, I feel yeah. like, uh, you know, some t you know, when you listen to like really obscure jazz music and you, and you just mm. think, well, sometimes I, you know, I listen to it and I just think I, I, I can't get into this. And there's almost this like intellectual barrier mm. that's like, you can't enjoy this unless you have done this much. Mm. I feel like, uh, some of the best artists are the ones who can seemingly give you the feeling of feeling like you're clever and like you're getting something, but also just understanding it instantly. That's what good pop music is, I guess. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, because they're involved. That's what I'm saying. They, they, the, they involve you in the process. Yeah. That's what good communication does, you know? Mm. Yeah. So it's not about delivering the perfect piece, you know? It's about swinging. It's about considering the audience as a member of, uh, or as a, as a participant of what you do. And, 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 you know, that it's, it's, a, a good terminology of, of a, a dialectual process is temperature because it describes the warm and the cold equally, you know. But you can also say if there's two instruments, the music is the way they come together. It's not one playing the part and then you play the other part and okay, they're both nice. But when they both connect, then you have good music for this. Mm. And I think that's really consider the audience as the part of your picture. Don't just go to the audience and impress them with how amazing you are as a photographer or as a filmmaker, yeah. you know, but Engage them. the more you involve them, then you read, that's what I think, that's what abstract art really does. It involves the audience to a certain point, tries, you know, any, any art, yeah. you know, yeah, totally in a agree. religious way, a Madonna. Yeah, I totally agree with that. Yeah. You know, the Renaissance, it's, it's involving your faith, you know. It's not just a painting. It's a it's a symbol of of hope, you know. And that's why people get involved in but in in, in Botticelli. 
that's definitely why I've always been interested in abstract art and modern art. I think more probably more so than classical stuff because because it does really evolve the the viewer and it asks you to be like reckon with this. What <laughs> it really mm. draws you in. Mm. So um, I mean, we kind of sort of touched on this already a little bit, but as we come to a to a close. Vincent, I kind of think about your portraiture is obviously, obviously you are you're pushing boundaries and trying to do something a little bit different from what's out there. What do you think the kind of the future of portraiture is? Where do you think it's going to go next? If I would, if I would know that right now, <laughs> um, I do think logically, I think there's periods of idealism and there's periods of realism. And I think right now, I mean, like I said, look, I was just, I had a lot of conversation recently in New York, just from a pure business point of view, nobody knows what comes after Instagram. Nobody has a plan B, you know, everybody agrees that Instagram changed the business. Some people make money with it. They think it's good. Most people think it destroys a lot. It seems to be a bit like a Starbucks, you know, what it does to corner cafes. Suddenly it's like cool to sit and to have Wi-Fi and to, to drink sugar and, and, and milk for like $10, you know, five. But it destroys a lot of, let's say, the organic neighborhood. And I think, you know, Instagram destroyed a lot of the organic idea of portrait and photography because it's been, it's been so much just reduced to the appearance. Mm. Because you just need to have people to think that you look great for in, in the second when they swipe through the phone. You don't want story. You just want the effect because you know the attention span people have on their phone. I mean, if you go to a museum, the interesting part to a photograph next to a film was that you, you stop on it longer. The, the, even if you have a book, even if you look at a newspaper, you were confronted with this picture for a longer time. While in a movie, the, 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 the amount of frames you're showing people, the director decides, you know, in a photograph, the audience can decide how long they look at it. But in a phone, it seems to be kind of like, you know, a, a rush of concentration that decides you, you always want to see more. It's always the next picture that's more interesting than the one you, you, you're just looking mm. at, you know. So, and I think that makes it very competitive and the competitiveness is not good for photography because you, you decide for the obvious. You know, if you have 10 girls competing with each other, the, probably the hair gets bigger and the short get, the, 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 the skirt gets shorter. You know, it's not necessarily, they don't try to convince you with character, you know. Mm. I don't know if that's a good analogy, but you know what I'm trying to say. If you put, it doesn't bring out the best in people if you put them in competition. And I think the, the problem with the phone and with the Instagram right now, portraiture, is that the pictures have been rather to be put in competition. Mm then then it would have been better if you would have um you know if they would have complemented each other like they used to do in a museum or in a gallery or in in, in magazines you know because you have more time and you, it breathes more and, and hopefully we get tired of this i mean look what happened in the mid 80s with mtv everything music suddenly was all about appearance you know you had to look like george michael to have a good song you know nothing to do with music mm. you know the music was kind of a side product, you know, of some like vanity display at MTV. MTV just disappeared. Today, it's some like cheap ass dating show for teenagers, you know. Mm. But I'm sure maybe that's going to happen. I'm sure in like 40 years, we'll be talking about the good old days of Instagram and this new thing that is destroyed. <laughs> destroyed. Yeah, I mean, I like I like I like Vincent's like kind of dichotomy on idealism and, and realism. And I like to think Definitely. there'll be a natural a natural swing back to realism. But unfortunately, it probably will be the, the business aspects that lead it. And it'll be whatever is the next thing after Instagram yeah. is what will probably unfortunately govern the way <laughs> I don't know, because like I said, look, if you if you go back to that theory that I had, um, that I was, that, that I, I apply to different things that, you know, we always materialize things and make them more, you know, we always make more life available. And, and it's always about growth. It's always about growth. Like photography is always about discovering new frames. But if you look at that, this whole thing, at some point, it turns around against us, you know, and we confront it with the, with the, with the, 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 the smaller side effect, what we create suddenly becomes a monster we can't deal with. That would be environmental today. Look, what are the biggest problems we have in life right now is 
is how we discovered plastic was an incredible invention. We discovered our own material. It was an unnatural, unorganic material. You know, it was light. It was, it was hard to destroy. Now today we can't get rid of the fucking plastic, you know, <laughs> and look at cars, you know, like everybody wants to have less cars. Everybody wants to live somewhere where it's less cars, you know, but we don't know how to do without it. So I think we need to be careful that the digital is not going to become the plastic of our brain that in the end nobody wants it, but nobody knows how to go to the supermarket and have no plastic anymore, you know. And I think that you have you have it even to a certain point with, uh, you know, when they developed nuclear energy, they really thought they could create the matter themselves. And then suddenly, you know, these things really come back to us, you know, yeah. and we don't know how to get rid of them anymore. And I think we have to be careful with digital photography because um, it's clearly something that has a very strong commercial effect because you know like i used to take pictures with my dad's old nikon you know i didn't have to buy a camera for 20 years now again you know we've been forced to upgrade all the time every photographer you know we always this this constantly moving concept of 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 sustain of growth rather than really feeling that we're going somewhere i think we're rather scared that we've been left behind if you don't update your website if you don't have new followers on instagram you're constantly afraid that um that you, as a photographer you've been left behind if you don't have the latest technical equipment it puts a lot of pressure on us mm. you know mm. and not for the better you know it, it, the the innovate i think none of us is really convinced that the phone we're having today is much better than the phone we had maybe a lot of people like the old nokia back <laughs> you know what i mean but, you know, I think we've been pushed into something that we it might not all be our choosing, but we play with it because we feel if we don't go along, especially as photographers or maybe filmmakers. But, I mean, if you look at Hollywood, you, you mentioned Tarantino. There's Tarantino. There's Christopher Nolan. Um, there is, I think, J.J. Uh, Abrahams who does, you know, whatever. Uh, uh, um, I think he just did Star Wars or something. Right? Yeah. They're all really value the cinematic experience they want to shoot on film they don't they want the movies to be shown in the theaters you know they don't go to netflix they don't go digital there is an emotional cinematic experience you know major directors in hollywood i think there's two or three others you know definitely tarantino even goes widescreen right now you know he even has an intermission i think in his last mm, movie yeah and he Lane, wanted yeah. to you know they want you to go there with your popcorn and they, they, you know, there's a nostalgia to it. And I hope that with photography, they see that I la lately I see photographs, they try to be a little bit out of focus again. You know, it's interesting because mm -hmm. I see that people discover like the soft focus and they probably do it in the computer. They do it by, 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 you know, they obviously, it's preconceived. It's not accidental, yeah. but they see the quality in something being not perfect. Yeah. And I think it's the same thing that, that again, Look, who would have thought in the 70s that one, like, sooner we're going to go back to organic food market. And if you go to Brooklyn today, everything needs to be vegan and, and, and fucking organic, you know? It's very yeah. true. And back in the day, the supermarket, the supermarket wrapped up in plastic, you know, put it in the microwave was the coolest thing ever, you know? But we completely turned against those trends. So let's see. It could go, this could go really to a different level, you know? I mean, yeah. I, one thing I guarantee you, you, our parents are very happy that they don't have as many selfies of themselves as we're going to have on ourselves where our kids can laugh about it. <laughs> yeah, I every mean, you know, every day yeah. of our lives documented. Well, not ours. We're a little bit before that, fortunately. But like the, the stuff our mothers were wearing in the 60s and 70s, dude, yeah. Jesus, they're, they're very happy that there's no photographs and stuff. <laughs> what were you doing when you were two years and three days old? Oh, I can tell you, I've got exact pictures. <laughs> exactly. You know, just, <laughs> you know, Mark, ask fucking Mark Zuckerberg. Zuckerberg, you know, he's got thousands <laughs> of it, you know. Yeah, cool. Well, thanks so much for your, your time, Vincent. It was uh, really interesting to talk to you today. And I hope you eventually get let out of the apartment and are able to get, yeah. get shooting again. Jesus, I, do, I hope we all do <laughs> kind of like, you know, again, it's the same thing, you know, we feel so safe and suddenly something happens that that could get rid of us in a few months, you know. I mean, yeah. imagine this virus would just have been a little bit more deadly, you know, the cars are there, the birds are there, the planes are on the airport. And suddenly, you know, if this thing would have been like one step genetically 
worse we we could have like you know we, we all could have been gone yeah it's know? a real it's a real wake-up call that you know we've been actually living in a kind of cloud cuckoo land really that, that actually the the rug yeah. could be pulled from under you at any moment yeah. there's uh there's one yeah. one good I mean, thing to I come out of it yeah none of us would have expected that level of vulnerability economically you know like you know medically nobody would have thought some fucking virus suddenly you know you thought yeah. you take a pill and go to the doctor and that's it jesus <laughs> even well, yeah. and, and it's probably uh gonna come back at some point with a vengeance which is a, a nice depressing note to well, uh again, to, 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 <laughs> <the sequel. laughs> yeah well look at the plague i mean also you see how long it takes to even understand this and to get a vaccination but look at the plague it it, it got rid of half half the world's population you know but I do think it's interesting how, how you, con- how we confronted with as an, as not just as a, as a, as a person, but as a, as a social and, and economical system that felt so solid and developed. And suddenly we all have to sit at home and everything breaks apart <laughs> because of some little thing that we don't even see. You know? it's, yeah, it's amazing, isn't it? I remember like being in New York like two weeks ago and there were, there, there were the rumors that they're going to shut down the city and people were like, this is New York City. This never, nobody can shut down New York. You can't shut me down. (laughs) You can't shut me down. Look at Fifth Avenue this morning. Boom. You know, there's like three cars, you know. Yeah. Well, we're we're all way more precious than we used to be. Before, you know, if in the 1600s, if 2 million people died from a plague, everyone just gets on with life. But like now everyone's like, whoa, wait the fuck second, 10,000 people are dead. It's like, yeah, it's a very different perceptions of it. I think than they used to be for better or worse. Cool. All right. Well, um, yeah, thanks again for today. Yeah, thank you very much, Vincent. Thank you, guys. I hope you, you got something interesting. Yeah, and, definitely. Um, we, we, we entertaining some people who look at this, gonna like discover some love for photography. Well, this is the good thing about podcasts because it's not just an instant thing. It's like you actually have to sit down and, and, and take it in over like quite a long period of time. That's why I love these, yeah. these podcasts so much. Yeah. And I think um, a lot of what you've said, I think when people look at your work, they might look at it a little, a little second longer as well. I think, um, there's obviously a lot of a lot of thought behind it, so it's been really interesting to hear that. Yeah, I'm trying. I'm German. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for listening to Candela. You can keep up with future episodes and news on the show on our Instagram at Candela Podcast. That's at C-A-N-D-E-L-A podcast. We will also be posting photography and cinematography that we like on there. You can also find us on YouTube and Vero.